Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. Why is one border open but not the other? Why are people crapping on billionaires in space? Do Canadians want an election? And there is a reason why the penis and the rocket are the shape they are. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Forget Disney World, I want to go into space! Or are we not allowed to dream anymore? It's the Scott Thompson Home Show, here's Scott Thompson! Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station. Keep it the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the fun. We would uh, love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Podcast edition of the commentary uh, waiting for you on Facebook and Twitter talking about uh, going into space, uh, which we will talk about coming up uh, a little later on in the show. Uh, you know, it's amazing the blowback from people. Uh, who are who are just uh, trashing uh, the three bazillionaires who are uh, financing their own way and their own programs into space uh, and, and continuing the exploration and, and looking beyond the great there the next frontier uh, and people are just you know you should be giving your money to the poor you should be you know and and again there's lots of ways to contribute to society you can you know, hand your money out to those who need it, or you can advance technology and put your money into something like that. Uh, again, both are uh, advancing society in some way. Both are uh, giving back. I mean, you know, the technology that comes out of space exploration. We had uh, Paul Delaney on yesterday from York University talking about this. And, you know, at one time we used to we used to applaud the, this sort of activity. Now we, we poop on it. Uh, imagine if we'd felt the same way about the Wright brothers. Uh, you know, at one time, only the rich could go on a train. Only the rich could sail. Only the rich could travel by air. Now most of us can. It's bizarre. It's bizarre the attitude we now have. Uh, forget the future. It's just hang on to what we got. All right, uh, feel free to weigh in on all of this. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, as I mentioned, the U.S. is uh, not opening up the border to Canadians. However, we are opening up the borders to the United States. Uh, they're leaving everything closed till August 21st. They'll readdress things there. Uh, the Prime Minister announced last uh, earlier on this week that, uh, in fact, we would be opening our borders to those fully vaccinated August 9th and September 7th to those uh, internationally. Uh, here's a report and uh, sums it all up for us. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security, citing ongoing threats posed by the spread of COVID-19, has opted to keep restrictions in place for its land borders with Canada and Mexico. The agency citing risk to personnel and travelers as the reason for keeping all but non-essential traffic off limits. It's a move likely to anger lawmakers of border towns who have argued that the Biden administration is ignoring science. But Canada and the U.S. are in vastly different places when it comes to this pandemic. The U.S. now lags in vaccine rates and its case counts have skyrocketed with 83% of all new cases linked to the Delta variant, and the seven-day average now tripling in the last month, with roughly 1,000 new cases identified every hour. The extension on restrictions goes in place at midnight and lasts until 11.59, August 21st. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington. All right, let's bring in Dion Elman, Associate Professor, Department of Mechanical and Industrial Engineering, Faculty of Applied Science and Engineering Director, Medical Operations Research Lab, University of Toronto, and with us now. Dion, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, I am well. Many are confused. Many are confused. Yes, thank you. Uh, many are confused as to why uh, Canada, Canada is opening its, up, uh, its borders to those coming in from the United States, but the United States is not opening uh, its borders up to Canada. Uh, I know both places are in different spots, but Canada's in the better situation. So what's in this for us? Yeah, I, I know on the surface it does actually seem pretty funny because Canada is doing so much better COVID-wise than the U.S. is. Why would the U.S. You know, prevent us from, from coming in, especially when we are letting fully vaccinated Americans come to Canada? But uh, really just reading between the lines of the state of the, the statement that, uh, that the U.S. released and looking at their COVID numbers, it really is about um, the situation in the U.S. It doesn't have anything to do with Canada. Um, things are 
starting to get out of hand in the U.S. again. Um, you know, as you just said, um, cases are taking off. Most of them are the Delta variant, which spreads uh, much more easily and really requires full vaccination to have uh, decent protection against. And their vaccination numbers in terms of fully vaccinated really seems to be topping out around 49 percent of the total population. Like that's not anywhere close to enough for herd immunity. So the U.S. right now is, is taking measures to protect itself. And it's, it's not a reflection on us. Uh, that being said, if it's that bad in the United States, why do we want them coming here? So the uh, the allowance for U.S. travelers coming here is for fully vaccinated travelers only. So anybody who's fully vaccinated uh, should have you know significant protection um, against having COVID before they get here. And uh, even if they do catch it, they should uh, you know be much less transmissible, much less contagious, uh, you know, much less likely to end up say hospitalized here in our hospitals. Um, so it is a much safer situation. Right? That's not to say that vaccines you know, provide an impenetrable barrier to, to COVID, but they really make things dramatically safer, even with the Delta variant, if you are fully vaccinated. Again, Dion, and you know I'm playing devil's advocate here, If you, uh, you know, on the other side of that coin, if uh, we are fully vaccinated, why can't we go into their country? Because for the same reasons we're letting them in is the same reason they'll be safe if they let us in. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Um, if we're fully vaccinated, we really pose really a infinitesimally small risk uh, to them coming in. But a lot of it is just about, it's just a pure numbers game, right? Like there are a lot of Canadians that would like to travel to the U.S. And so if we have, you know, 100,000, you know, more Canadians that suddenly decide to go to the U.S. in the next month, then the chances of a few people being infected that slips through, infects a few people at their destination city, um, that can actually turn into something really significant in terms of disease spread in the U.S. Whereas here, we have you know such a good vaccination uh, coverage so far, and hopefully it will continue to get better, that uh, the risk to us of, of an escaped infection sparking an outbreak is much less. Uh, so what is the advantage? What is in this for us? In terms of letting Americans, of letting Americans in here, yeah. Well, of course, there's tourism dollars, right? There's there's business uh, impacts, um, you know, positive uh, economic benefits by travelers coming here to uh, to spend their money. But there's also the human aspect of it. You know, lots of us have family in the U.S. Uh, that we haven't been able to see for a long time uh, that could now actually come and visit, and uh, you know, that's just it's a good thing, right? It's a good thing to to let people reunite with their uh, uh, friends and loved ones. We were sort of given the message that this was something that both Canada and the United States were working on in unison. We've been talking about this for months because we've been talking about border openings for months. Um, are you surprised that this, you know, that the Canadian announcement is made and the Americans make an entirely different announcement? Uh, I mean, not so much. You know, the thing with COVID that uh, that, it, that is really hard, I think, for a lot of people to grasp is that it's constantly a fluid situation. Like if this announcement had come out even just, uh, let's say, two or three weeks ago, um, I would not have been surprised if there were equal uh, lifting of travel restrictions on both sides because the U.S. had been pretty level with uh, case counts for, uh, for a few weeks before then. But just in the past couple of weeks, their case counts are taking off. And, you know, the thing about any infectious disease spread, not just COVID, is that once it takes off, it doesn't just, you know, suddenly die down, right? It takes off, and it takes off a lot unless uh, changes are made, you know, restrictions are put into place. So the U.S. is just reacting to a rapidly changing situation um, on their soil. Other than, uh, obviously, the border cities, and we can certainly understand, uh, you know, their concern about, especially, you know, places like Niagara Falls, we've talked to them in regard to having uh, tourism and Americans coming in and, and the amount of, of money that they spend there. But other than those businesses, is there really a reason to be doing this? Because, again, the science applies on both sides of the border, and in the end, we're in a much better place. So uh, because we're in a better place, we're letting in others that are not in a better place. I mean, again, it just I think Canadians, I think initially when we first heard this yesterday, it's yay. And now people are scratching their head once they hear the whole story. Well, again, we're only letting in fully vaccinated Americans. So yeah. it really should be very safe for us. And so again, automatically 50 percent of them are eliminated anyway. 
<laughs> this is true. Um, but, uh, you know, hopefully that means that anybody who does actually, uh, any Americans who do actually want to come to Canada, maybe that spurs them to get uh, that second shot if they haven't already gotten it, because the U.S. really does have quite a disparity between um, uh, people with uh, one dose and people who are fully vaccinated. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are just uh, issuing that second dose. So hopefully that would spur some people to get that second dose or maybe get vaccinated in the first place. But either way, they're not coming here unless they have proof of being fully vaccinated. So the risk to us is small, but the benefit is pretty large. And once case counts are, are low here, which they are and they have been now uh, for a couple of months, that means that we're in a much better position to contain any outbreaks that might occur. Do you think this decision is more political than it is uh, um, from a health perspective? Uh, not really. Um, you know, I think I think that it's it's a reasonable relaxation to make uh, at this time, um, assuming, of course, that our public health agencies uh, around the province, around the country, um, have the resources to adequately um, respond with, you know, contact tracing and, you know, speed of, of quarantining individuals if uh, any outbreaks do pop up. But, you know, we as a population have done uh, a good job of getting vaccinated, right? We have, we have a little ways to go before I can say it's a great job, but we really are um, among the world leaders in vaccination rates. Um, so we do have a lot of protections, which means we, we can actually now start talking about um, more relaxations in, in a global sense, not just, you know, what are we allowed to do locally? Uh, do you think Canada opening early puts pressure on the United States, on on Biden to open up the borders there? Um, I'm sure it puts some pressure, but uh, ultimately I think that, uh, you know, President Biden will do what he thinks is necessary um, for the U.S. to be as safe as he can make it uh, within his power. Where do you think we will be come fall? Many have said we could see a slight increase simply because of kids going back to school and things just uh, gradually opening uh, opening up. Do you think this will play into the border decision moving forward? Yeah, I think kids going back to school in the fall is uh, is a much bigger question mark in terms of uh, safety and increasing cases than opening up the border to fully vaccinated. Uh, travelers. And the reason for that is that as of right now, kids age zero to 12 are not vaccinated, none yeah. of them. So, um, you know, if if any of them have managed to become exposed to COVID through their parents and family members or, you know, older siblings, uh, once they go back to school, then there's a real opportunity for COVID to spread among this, uh, this vulnerable population. Uh, you know, thankfully, kids, you know, even with the Delta variant, you know, continue to be much less likely to end up with uh, severe symptoms um, compared to adults. So that's good. But on the other hand, we, we don't just want to, you know, casually expose our our children to uh, to this disease just because they won't technically end up in, in a hospital or or dead or, or have only a small likelihood of doing it. So opening up uh, uh Schools in the fall is is definitely going to um, result in an increase in cases, um, definitely in that age group. We'll see how much uh, increase there actually will be. I mean, I'm sure it won't be anything like the uh, previous waves that we've experienced, where you know the entire population was uh, was exposed. Um, you know, I think it'll be you know much smaller wave, more contained, and we shouldn't see the same uh, kind of. Uh, close tracking of hospitalization and death numbers with uh, with case counts um, in the fall. And, uh, you know, Pfizer uh, has said uh, last month that they are hoping uh, in mid-September to get FDA approval to vaccinate uh, kids age two and up. So if that happens and then, you know, Canada additionally approves it, then we could see, let's say by the end of the year, most of our kids age two and up are vaccinated. And at that point, uh, I think we can really breathe a big sigh of relief that, uh, We've really uh, left the woods behind us. That was my next question is when do you think the timeline would be for the uh, approval of the vaccine for those under 12? Do you think we're going to see as much hesitancy in that age group as we are starting to see now? Probably. Are there parents that are going to, you know, no, I don't want to put I don't want to put my kids yeah. into this. Yeah. 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 So, you know, parents, you know, they might uh 
rightly or wrongly, believe that uh, their kids are in some way more vulnerable to vaccines than to the disease itself. Um, but I would really caution um, any parents who are concerned to just, you know, talk with your family doctors, talk with your pediatricians. Um, you know, if, if the vaccine gets approval, it's because it is safe. Uh, you know, these things are not fly-by-night. There's huge, huge trials uh, happening in the U.S. for, for kids age two and up. Um, you know, things are happening fast, but corners are not being cut. So I understand that there's hesitancy, but again, people just need to talk to their own trusted medical uh, professionals. Do you, uh, Some experts have said this will become a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Do you agree? Um, well, the unvaccinated will, of course, bear the brunt of um, any outbreaks, hospitalizations, and deaths. But we are seeing quite a number of breakthrough cases of the Delta variant occurring in uh, fully vaccinated individuals. Um, for example, the Yankees, right, if anybody follows nice. baseball. Um, <clears throat> there are a couple of, uh, of aides of uh, Nancy Pelosi's uh, in the States who are fully vaccinated who, uh, who have tested positive. But um, we are you know, seeing that uh, in fully vaccinated individuals, they are much less likely to have severe reactions to COVID, much less likely to end up hospitalized. So people should still get vaccinated, even if there is a chance uh, that you might still um, test positive at some point for COVID. Dion Elman with us, Associate Professor, Department of Mechanical and Industrial Engineering and uh, Director of Engineering and Director of uh, Medical Operations Research Lab, University of Toronto. Uh, thank you so much, Dion. Much appreciated. Be well. You too, Scott. Here's today's daily commentary. Have you noticed the barrage of garbage on social media crapping on the bazillionaires that are flying their own money and their own design crafts into space while promoting its ongoing exploration for the common person that is opposed to saving the planet or any other cause extremists may latch on to? First of all, there is nothing new in this type of discussion and has been going on since we were debating whether the world was flat or round or the horseless carriage and electricity would be the demise of humankind. At one time, only the rich could sail the high seas, let alone fly on an airplane. Now, most of us can, if desired. Imagine if we felt the same way about the Wright brothers as we do these men. What type of rock do you have to be under to think we can save all those left behind if we simply never move forward? That is socialism not progress, and certainly not what this great country or similar democracies to it were built on. Lead, follow, or get out of the way. I'm Scott Thompson. We were talking uh, just moments ago in our last segment with Dion Elman, and as Will is hanging up uh, and, and saying and goodbye to Dion and thanking her, uh, somehow uh, it is realized that she went to school with uh jeff bezos um so we called her back or we are in the process of calling her back and trying to get uh a little bit more insight into what we are about to talk about uh so bringing back dion elman associate professor uh at the medical operations research lab university of toronto uh, dion thanks for the time uh and thanks for joining us again on uh, such a short notice but as as will's hanging up we we realize there's a connection here to uh the issue we're going to talk about next and that is jeff bezos and uh billionaires flying up into space you were saying that you went to school with jeff bezos well i didn't go to school with jeff bezos i am much much younger <laughs> uh but uh he actually he went to my high school and uh he was just a couple of years ahead of my aunt um at uh, that same high school that we all went and, to and where was this uh so this is in miami uh miami palmetto senior high school in florida so you can imagine so, the issues of opening the U.S. border and uh, poor vaccination rates in the U.S., especially in Florida, are particularly close to home for me. Yeah, I can imagine. Oh, my goodness. There's another issue right there. Um, mm -hmm. we, could, we could have a chat about. Uh, so give us some sort of insight here. What did you hear uh, being a student that followed him? Yeah, so uh, so when I was in high school, Jeff Bezos was, you know, not a household name, um, you know, still like nobody really knew uh, who he was, but uh, some of my older teachers would actually talk about him. 
Uh, actually, I remember my journalism teacher, uh, Mrs. Yaskin, who was just absolutely one of the most transformative figures that any high school uh, high schooler could ever want to have, just an amazing teacher and role model. She used to go on and on about Jeff Bezos, uh, especially if we were running behind putting together uh, that particular issue of, of the newspaper. And she'd say, like, Jeff Bezos would have written his article on time. Jeff Bezos would have his section laid out. Jeff Bezos would have sold that <laughs> ad space. Jeff Bezos, Jeff Bezos, Jeff Bezos. So none of us knew who Jeff Bezos was, but we all hated him. (laughs) That's incredible. So uh, he was clearly uh, blazing a trail back then. Was it all positive or was it negative? Uh, Well, we only ever heard about anything positive. Um, I've never heard anything negative about uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, really, you know, other than, uh, you know, once he became a billionaire and just the general scrutiny that uh, that comes with that. Mm hmm. Uh, so he was very much held up as a a person to uh, uh, to acknowledge and and to strive to be like. That's right. That's right. He was. That's. Uh, so what do you think now of his accomplishment and that name? I, I mean, I think it's it's incredible. I mean, there are very few people in the world who have had such an impact on, uh, frankly, our daily lives as uh, the creator of of the Amazon, you know, I mean, how many of us go a week or, you know, a month or, you know, in the case of my household, like even a few days without uh, picking something up on, on Amazon, um, you know, it's really uh, just incredible. So why do you think there's so much pushback against what he's doing and the other two are doing right now? Uh, well, you know, um, you said it earlier, but a lot of people view, you know, spending, you know, millions and billions of dollars for, uh, you know, essentially like just a lark, uh, you know, go up to uh, to space just to, you know, experience it uh, is is a little bit uh, callous in the face of so much, uh, you know, strife and inequity and hunger that exists in the world. Do we all believe uh, you know, that it's a lark? Do we all believe it's a lark, though, or is this contributing to society just in another way? Is this a lark? So I think a lot of people see it as a lark, um, yeah. and you know maybe the maybe these you know these billionaires see it the same way. But uh, but ultimately, like the amounts of money that they're injecting into space travel um, really helps scientific community and uh, and our further aspirations towards space expo- exploration. So why do we not, lose uh, sight of that, Dion? Why do why don't we see that anymore? Well, I think probably a lot of it is that uh, there are a lot more concerns down here on the ground uh, now than maybe when space travel was, you know, really taking off and people were so excited about space in like the fifties and sixties and the moon landings and uh, the race to space and and all of that stuff. Um, you know, I think uh, just economically, I think the world is is different now. Like back then, you could support you know a whole family and own a house on a single person's income for really most any type of job but it's not that way now right um you know people have to work a lot harder to get those same sorts of uh of uh comforts like creature comforts and uh you know what we often consider to be a right like housing rights and you know right to education uh, and that sort of stuff so you know even though the world was certainly less than perfect in the 50s and 60s compared to now, there was at least that one positive aspect that uh, you didn't have to work so hard just to provide a, a roof over your heads and, you know, food for your family. So I think now uh, people's focus is, is just a lot more in the here and now. Uh, uh, Dion Allen with us, uh, Medical Research Oper- or Operations Research Lab, University of Toronto, and also followed uh, Jeff Bezos through high school, giving us her perspective. Dion, thanks so much for joining us and uh, and giving her perspective. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. You too. All right. That's uh, fascinating. We didn't expect to get uh, to that sort of insight, but obviously uh, blazing a trail back in high school. All right. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman on this. Uh, Alyssa PR, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. Thanks for having me. Are you surprised there is so much pushback against billionaires and their space flights? Is this all a lark? I mean, my goodness, uh, you know, I have physics professors on, you know, saying how this helps and, and what this does uh, to advance science and technology, even though many view it as a lark. Are, are you surprised at this? I, you know, what's interesting, I was listening to your last caller, which I found fascinating. Um, and then I, I'm up two minds. Here's the thing. When somebody who is powerful and really good at what they do does something extraordinary, 
one of two things will happen. Everybody said half of the people will go, wow. And the other half of the people will go, oh, yeah, but dot, dot, dot. So I think that what the, the space travel has done for these billionaires is, unfortunately, it's really highlighted just how many tax, how much in taxes that they don't pay. And that is certainly illuminating. However, what if we looked at the other side of the coin, such as many of these professors have said, in that sometimes, you know, through bureaucracy, it can take a long time to innovate and actually have innovation come to fruition. Lots of people have good ideas, but lots of people can't execute. So here you have these guys who have been very, very successful. And let's face it, Scott, all those people who are naysaying Jeff uh, Bezos are also clicking add to cart on Amazon while they're doing it. Hmm. So when you look at somebody like that and uh, Richard Branson and Elon Musk, who have been able to push the needle to create efficiencies in our lives and transformational approaches to driving, transformational approaches to listening to music, transformational approaches to shopping, and then they go and do something like this, well, the, all that good stuff goes out the window. And then what happens is, is that the naysayers, you know, um, it might be a small minority, we're not sure, but it's certainly filling my social feeds. There's a small minority who are screaming quite loudly. Uh, is there only way, is there only one way to help society and that's through their way, which is giving to charity? Uh, is, are you not helping society by advancing it and investing in the future? Is there only one way to help here? And it seems that because you don't like my way, then we're going to crap on you. Well, you know, that's, that's really interesting. And it's really entrepreneurs that help advance, help Bingo. advance society. And you have, to, you have to give them credit for that. You absolutely. People have been talking about traveling into space and, you know, settling on Mars uh, for as long as like, you and I have been kids. But has anybody, you know, how much have they had, have advanced it to this point? You know, NASA is a great organization, but, you know, let's face it, there's many, many layers of hierarchy and policy, et cetera, et cetera. And you it's know, taxpayers' money. And taxpayers' money. This is not taxpayers' money. This is their own money. So if we turned around and said, okay, they've used their own money to advance um, you know, the science and the execution of space travel. I think, Scott, if we were in a different time, if we weren't just coming out of COVID and people were all in, not in uh, snippy moods, which a lot of people are, a lot of people are still, I mean, yeah. ask any restaurateur right now, um, that I think we might look at this differently. But right now, I think, you know, instead of being celebratory, we're more interested in taking people down to make ourselves feel better. Somehow, uh, what happened to Sunny Ways? We were yeah. promised Sunny Ways. Like, this is, the, you know, we're hating everybody. It's this, it's that, it's whatever. It's this community, it's that community. And, and, and you know, getting back to, to, to Bezos, I mean, you know, at one point, only the rich could travel on a train. Only the rich could sail on a ship. Only the rich could fly in an airplane. Now most of us can. I mean, come on here. Uh, you, you know, I, I'm not sure what it is that's making us give up on the future. We're just cantankerous, and I don't think that people can see as far as their noses, as the expression goes right they, now. I think that is absolutely true. I think we become so disengaged in listening to two-word headlines, and, and, and that's the way we are. You know, oh, look, it's, uh, yeah, I almost said something bad there. But, you know, it's the phallic symbol uh, in space sort of thing. It's in, in the person who's riding it. It's like, are you serious? Yeah, Imagine and, if and we'd thought this way about the Wright brothers. Well, uh, you know, somebody asked me the other day, you know, is this are these guys the Wright brothers? And I thought, well, I don't know. I mean, I, it's hard for me to look at that at that way. But then again, I also don't know enough, enough about the technology to give you an accurate answer about that. But right now people are... You know, they want the economy to open up. They want their jobs back. They want to be free and happy again. And, you know, it seems that the majority of people are not. Or the people who are want to scream the loudest, who, you know, have nothing to do but. And I call them bandwagon jumpers. I mean, really, Scott, you know, today is Jeff Bezos and then tomorrow it's... It's you know, fashionable politics. It, it, it's it, fashionable it, politics. It's TikTok politics. I call it fashionable screaming. Good point. Um, you know, I, I think what's fascinating with all of this 
is that uh, nobody seems to be coming to the defense of these people. You know, I'm watching Stephen Colbert last night. Even he's crapping on all of this. Uh, you, you know, and, and you know, I, I'm on last night with Alex Pearson at, at 6:40 in Toronto, and and I'm on with another guest who makes the the reference to you know it's a giant penis, and I thought okay ha 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 ha, but then three or four times kept relating to this giant penis, and I'm thinking is that what it's come to? Uh, why aren't you having this discussion with a physics professor? You know, there's a reason these graphs are shaped the way they are, and the penis for that matter. But this is what it has come to. It's like, oh, it, it's just, uh, you know, uh, a guy riding a giant penis into space. It's like, my God. I mean, am I am I out to lunch here, Alyssa? No, and I think that, you know, when you have guests on the radio or people are given their opportunity to express their opinion, everybody is thinking about, what can I say that's clickbait? So they're going to go, well, it looks like a penis. Like, you know, maybe they don't care about uh, physics. Maybe they don't care about aerodynamics. All they care about is that they're making a point and then maybe somebody will repeat it and it'll create some sort of virality out of that. I think that that's all that that is. And sometimes we are so consumed with what am I going to say that's going to make more of an impact and who cares if there's nothing uh, positive about it. And I think in many cases that what, that's what we've come to. But, you know, unless those viewpoints are challenged and unless those people are challenged, then you get these vocal minorities who are just, you know, screaming until the next flavor of the what else can yeah. I scream about pops up. And let's, and let's be really clear. The people who scream the loudest have no skin in the game, could not care less, and are never part of the solution. All they are is part of bringing up the problem, gain some sort of satisfaction about bringing up the problem, and then they run away to the next problem. You know, they're professional complainers or they're yeah. professional rabble-rousers, and they cloak themselves in the issues of other organizations only as it suits them. Hashtag rant over. All right, you know, and, and and I certainly agree with what he said about Amazon employees and thanking them. I mean, you know, this man isn't—he's not going to win, uh, you know, the the Mister Congeniality contest here. But is Elon Musk? I mean, most geniuses, their brains are so preoccupied with what they're doing, there isn't a lot there for social skills. Uh, you know, and, and and again, that probably wasn't well. It wasn't the best thing to say. But on the other hand, um, is that the point here? You know, it, you know, that's a really interesting point, actually, Scott, when you talk about the personalities of people and whether they engage uh, the populace or whether they don't. Are they and most geniuses are, are a little off-center. They're, they're not very sociable. No, and I think that the one who is probably the most sociable out of them all is Richard Branson because yeah. he's always been one to participate in the craziest stunt. You know, for him, you know, any PR is good PR. Not something that I subscribe to, but certainly that's been his MO for, you know, over several decades. And he's really enjoyed himself. So, you know, when he wants to go up to space, I don't think people are... He's not really, if you look at the three of them, he's not really the primary target of all the negativity. It's really the other ones. And honestly, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are so preoccupied with pushing the envelope. I am sure that they will get briefed and say, okay, well, how is this received? Well, it was mostly this and as opposed to that. But at the end of the day... do they they don't care. They, they don't care, care at all. No, no they're pushing they the boundaries. And then you know what? This is only this is short-term pain for long-term gain. And all these people who are complaining, trust me, if they got a note, you know, in their in, in their inbox on their email that says you've been chosen for free to take the next space flight to Mars with you know Jeff Bezos, do you think that they would click no? Mm, of course yeah. not, because everybody's an opportunist, Scott. And so, you know, you take those opportunities and you say about what you want about those opportunities as it suits you and not necessarily the greater good. What does this say about our ambition, our ingenuity, our, you know, our strive to move forward, our strive to be better? It seems we're looking more behind us than we are ahead of us. Even, you know, even if there's lots of issues to deal with, and, and I don't mean to diminish any of them. But the solution is in the future, not the past. And I don't think that this really colors everybody who is not looking towards the future. Like I say, I think this is a minority of people who are, 
you know, sitting there and grumbling. I mean, you know, these people are, are not necessarily the people who are going to change the future anyways. I think that those people who are intent on innovation are still intent on innovation, and, will, and they will make impact, whether it's, you know, next year, five years from now, ten years from now. And all those positive impacts, quite frankly, will affect us, hopefully in a positive way. And then, you know, we'll see how great it is, and then we'll have nothing to complain about that until the next thing. So do I think that this is going to hinder innovation? Not at all, because those companies, those individuals, those think tanks, those government organizations that are, you know, all in, I think will continue to be all in and will continue to push the envelope. Do you think the public is getting tired of this, just getting hammered, 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 hammered with this stuff? You mean whether it's negativity? Yeah. Yeah, I think they are. And I think that a lot of people are going to start drawing a line between the negativity and the negative Nellies to those people who are still complaining about not wearing a mask or not getting vaccinated. You know, the tolerance level for these groups of people is now very low. And I have heard some really disparaging things about people who won't wear masks or won't get vaccinated. And, you know, many people are like, okay, well, you take your life in your hands. See you later. And the whole sort of like, you know, look out for one another and be kind to to humankind is really out the window for these naysayers. So (laughs) I think that... You know, yeah, there are people all complaining about it. And yes, it becomes water cooler conversation. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, if you're like a, a negative Nelly, even if you are close, have a close friend that's a negative Nelly, you obviously limit interaction with them because you just don't want to be in their orbit and you just don't want to hear their cantankerous rantings. And it's basically the same. And that's why these people, the sort of vocal minority, they jump from cause to cause because they know they can only have so much air into the balloon before it pops. Uh, I think you were probably one of the ones I asked way back at the beginning of all of this uh, when we realized it was changing our life, if we would come out the other end less divisive and more empathetic. Do we know the answer now? If we come out of this, will we be more empathetic? Empathetic, yeah. Less you divisive. Know, I, I would hope so. I, I think that it's going to depend on the situation. Like, if you are not trying to push the needle forward um, to advancing good, then I think that people just don't want to be with you, and they just don't want to work with you, and and they just don't want to be friends with you. And I think that because we are starting to all get together again, people are realizing, you know, what it's like to go out for dinner with friends, what it's like to have family over, what it's like. And I think that as we continue to do that, I'm hoping that it will shore up those positive and good feelings that we have about one another. And that I hope it carries on into other parts of our lives. Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, Alyssa PR. As always, Alyssa, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Many have, uh, well, you know what? I think we've been chatting about an election all the way through this global pandemic. Remember at one point there was a, uh, uh, a throne speech and such and a reset of the government. And it appeared like we might even get a snap election between the first and second wave. That window shut, clo- uh, shut, uh, closed pretty quickly. And uh, now it's been speculation as to when this is going to happen. Many thought the end of the summer, obviously vaccination rates playing a a part there. Now talking uh, about uh, September and such for an election. How do we feel about an election? Nick Nano's chief data scientist and founder of of Nano's Research has found uh, how we're feeling about an election. And Nick is with us now. Nick, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Good to see you too, and talk to you. Listen and listen to all your viewers. Uh, you know, it, it's it's. You know, I was talking to uh, another guest about this, Nick. Do Canadians ever want an election? No, and uh, you know, elections not really at the top of their list. And I would expect that for many average Canadians coming off the pandemic, an election would be very low on the priority list because above that would be things like perhaps going on vacation, seeing loved ones, going out seeing your friends and neighbors, and trying to have some sort of normalization. So elections are not usually top, uh, top yeehaw events, 
But I would expect coming off the pandemic, there are a lot of other things that Canadians would like to do before uh, they start having their doors knocked on and their telephones ringing from uh, from elected politicians in their campaigns. So what are the chances of calling one? And it, it, yeah, we remember earlier on, it's like, you know, they wanted one, but nobody wanted to call it. Nobody wanted to be the one that's seen as triggering uh, an election. What about blowback if, if people aren't ready for this? Well, we do know that... Uh, Whenever an election is called or an early election is called, it's always an issue, but it's usually only an issue for about seven to ten days. The one thing about what's happening right now is that the Liberals have effectively telegraphed that there will be an election for weeks now. So if they do call an election, as a number of people expect in uh, in early to mid-August, it'll be old news and people will be mm. desensitized. And uh, as a result, this it probably won't be as much of an issue compared to a snap election that's called right out of the blue. So, in other words, uh, enough trial balloons have been floated. People are aware yep. there's not going to be any. Nobody will be blindsided by this information. Now, your research, 26% uh, support an election. Would that normally be the number? Would it normally be higher than that? Uh, again, uh, going back to the point that usually we never want one. Well, you know, I would say that that's uh, that would be that would be low. You know, we ask Canadians about their feelings about a fall election and and how they would use to describe their feelings, ranging from being happy to being upset to being neutral. And about 26% said they'd be happy to have an election. 37% of Canadians said they'll be upset, and the rest were kind of ambivalent uh, on that. So not a lot of enthusiasm for an election right now. Uh, I think probably the enthusiasm would probably be a little higher in the fall, uh, when uh, when things get back to normal, when we start to cycle out of the vacation uh, period, but right now, if there was uh, if there was an election, there's just not a lot of people that would be uh, that would be enthusiastic because the survey asked about an election this fall because that's what we thought three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Now it might be perhaps called as early as the beginning of August. Uh, who would be in favor? Uh, any breakdown of, of the twenty-six percent that do want an election? Is that opposition, yeah. or is that the parties that are that is in power? Actually, it's more uh, demographic than anything else. You know, what we find is that uh, younger people are more uh, open to having an election, uh, as are men compared to uh, women, and younger people compared to uh, seniors, for example. Um, the other thing is, is that what we do know from some of our data that. You know, if you happen to not be happy with the Liberal government, uh, you're probably more likely to want an election because, from your perspective, you want to vote against the government to try to have them lose an election. 37% don't want an election or would be upset with that, uh, but there's an awful lot unsure 30, uh, of, uh, of the population that are unsure. 34%. What are your thoughts on such a large number that are unsure? Well, I think these would be the people that will just go with the flow. Uh, we, the reality is, is that we know that we're in a minority government situation and that whenever there's a minority government, an election can happen at any time. You know, the other thing that we know is that uh, right now, at least, it seems like Canada has the upper hand when it comes to the pandemic. The appetite for an election would have been much lower as, you know, the cases for COVID-19 were ramping up because there would have been a, a public health concern. But right now, the narrative, especially in in Ontario and Quebec, for example, would be that uh, the pandemic is under control compared to the past, that more and more individuals are getting vaccinated, that the cases, especially the hospitalization and deaths, are uh, are on the decline. And as a result, there's not a major uh, health reason, public health reason, to not have an election. So is this a window that will be open for a while, or do you think this window will close after a while? The longer this goes, the harder it is for the party in power. I think for the Liberals, the the window will probably be open for at least two to three months uh, to call an election. You know, the other date that's kind of the unspoken date is that according to the the budget, which approved the extension of the stimulus, is that the stimulus has been extended until the last week of September. And there are individuals that believe that the Liberals want to make sure that they have an election before stimulus stops or is geared back, uh, and that they believe that uh, that would benefit the, the Liberals. But I would say that as long as the pandemic is under control, uh, as long as uh, more and more Canadians are getting vaccinated, 
they will probably be not enthusiastic, but okay with Hmm. uh, having a potential federal election. Now, uh, we've talked on many levels how uh, what life is like or will be like in a post-COVID-19 world or certainly after the pandemic portion uh, of this. Uh, You polled on voting by mail. Has this changed as a result of the pandemic? Do you know what? We've never in our 30 years of polling ever asked Canadians about Hmm. their appetite to vote by mail because traditionally everyone has been voting in person, but because of the pandemic, we've seen countries around the world where an increasing number of voters have decided to opt for mail. And in the survey that we did for CTV News, it suggests that uh, about 37% of Canadians are outright interested in uh, voting by mail in the next federal election, and another 24% are somewhat interested. So, you know, between those two groups, you've got six out of every 10 Canadians that are open to voting by mail. And, uh, you know, Scott, think of it this way. It could be like the U.S. election. You know, on the U.S. election, on election night, we have all the in-person voting. Yeah. And then we wait for the mail stuff to be counted. And uh, sometimes the results are a little different. If you remember in the U.S. election, Trump did well on election day. But once all those mail ballots were counted, it was uh, it was a win for, for Biden. So the, I guess the interesting thing here is that with the pandemic, they're just uh, Canadians that are good with voting by mail. And uh, we perhaps, depending on how Elections Canada handles things and how it markets it, we might see uh, a significant proportion of Canadians opt for the mail. Uh, since uh, we're into voting by, uh, by mail, what about online? We didn't ask about that. And uh, there aren't very many countries that have online uh, voting because of security concerns. There's uh, the online voting has mostly been uh, used by uh, political parties, you know, especially in Canada. A number of political parties have used online voting uh, and voting by telephone, for that matter, in order to select their leaders. But we haven't really seen uh, large scale voting online yet. And I think for for some Canadians, based on some of the other research that we have about online privacy and security, uh, that there there might be some concerns that Canadians might have about uh, not having a physical ballot whether by mail or in person, that a human being can look at, validate, and confirm that it is uh, cast in the right and cast properly. You talked about the U.S. election and uh, the mail-in ballots. There's still people today that are <laughs> saying that the U.S. election isn't accurate uh, and it was a fraud. Do you think if we introduce uh, mail-in ballots that we're going to have the same sort of thing if your party, if your team doesn't win? Uh, I don't think so. You know, one of the one of the things that is very different from the way elections are run in Canada compared to the United States is that in the United States, uh, the organization of the presidential elections happen on a state by state basis, which is why there's all different kinds of voting and and the states are involved in that process. In Canada, we have one body for national federal elections. It's Elections Canada, which means that they can set rules that are implemented consistently across the country and applied consistently across the country and enforced consistently across the country. So there's, I would say that there's probably a, a much less risk in Canada that there would be concern about, uh, about mail voting compared to the United States where there's a diversity of rules and enforcement. Uh, I'm sure, I, I don't know if there's polling on this, Nick, but just your general feeling of the mood of Canadians, where we are now. We certainly remember what it was like at the beginning of this pandemic, what it was like in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, and many thought that uh, once vaccine really started to flow into the country and we're getting the vaccination rates, the high vaccination rates that we are, happy days are here again. Uh, there still seems to be a lot of divisiveness there's still see and we would have this conversation all through the pandemic do you think this will unite us do you think this will create empathy do you think this will bring us together what do you think the mood is of canadians coming out of this because it still feels there's some anger out there yeah it's it's actually the mood is the mood is quite mixed and if i could probably use one word to sum up how many canadians feel it's probably relief relief that they can go outside a relief that they could potentially start going back to work relief that they can see their loved ones and start planning, for example, a family vacation. Uh, on the economic front, in the weekly tracking that we do for uh, Bloomberg News, where we have a confidence index, it suggests that Canadians are quite confident that the economy is going to rebound this fall 
uh, as a result of pulling out of the pandemic. So economically, Canadians are confident, and a lot of this has to do with what I'll say pent-up spending and pent-up activities that Canadians want to engage in that they have not been able to engage in. At the same time, people are uh, concerned about the future. They still are much more likely to think that a few, the future generations will have a lower standard of living, and I think for those Canadians that and Canadian individuals and businesses that have been relying on stimulus checks, now they're starting mm. to think about, you know what, this is going to end. And what does it mean in terms of my employment, my jobs, or for a business, how I'm going to pay the bills and keep the payroll going once the stimulus stops. Nick Nano's with us, Chief Data Scientist, founder of Nano's Research, talking about Canadians and how we feel about an election. Nick, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I can't believe what I'm reading uh, in the Internet. Well, I guess you can. What the heck? It's social media. But I was on uh, another radio show last night, and the host had a guest on, which kept commenting on the fact that the Blue Origin rocket that, that Bezos took up was looked like a penis. And I thought, okay, ha, 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 but then kept going back to it and back to it and back to it and back to it, to, you know, to which, you know, I, I answered, have you talked to a, a physics professor about this? Because I, I think there's a reason uh, that uh, a lot of rockets you could make the same uh, comparison to. Um, but for some reason, and in, in the billionaires in space, people are looking at any opportunity to take a shot. Uh, at these people. And, um, you know, I, I thought we had to bring Paul in to clarify this from a physics perspective as opposed to a PR campaign. Paul Delaney with us now from York University. Paul, what are your thoughts on the reaction to this launch? Uh, I, 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 what could I say, Scott? This is one of our more unusual conversations. Um, you're absolutely right. There is suggestive uh, appearances associated with the Blue Origins New Shepard. But if you look at all of the more recent rocket designs, and that includes the Falcon 9 and Dragon combination, they do all flare at the top. Their fairings, that area on top of the rocket that protects the payload, uh, tends to flare outwards. The main reason for that, of course, is that we are trying to literally put more material, more payload into Earth orbit on top of a given rocket. And as long as there is still aerodynamics associated with that top end, that is to say it is smooth and so on, uh, then you can flare outwards, stack more material inside, you get more bang for your buck. And when all is said and done, every single launch that we engage in is you know a business model you want to maximize your payload for the rocket that is delivering it admittedly blue origins probably goes a little bit too far as far as its appearance is concerned but the design was there to maximize the number of people that you could put on top of new shepherd give them all a fabulous window view of the outside world and worked out that you ended up with a capsule that was oversized and it's a business model. <laughs> it's, it's it's nothing more than that in my mind. Uh, and uh, from a physics standpoint or an aerodynamics standpoint, um, you, you can't fly a big square block up there, can you? No, you cannot. Uh, getting through the atmosphere is tough enough as it is. And just like vehicles, if you think back to some of the early uh, vehicles back in the 20s and the 30s, they were very boxy. Okay. Yeah. And now, of course, every vehicle that comes off the assembly line has got smooth shapes so that the air aerodynamically flows over the vehicle and you maximize your fuel economy. We've learned that as far as automobiles are concerned, the fastest trains on the planet, same thing. Their leading edges are all aerodynamic. They are designed so that the wind literally has as little impact on the overall vehicle, regardless of how long it is, how massive it is, it has as little impact as is possible. 
no different as far as spaceflight is concerned. You cannot fly a brick into space. We don't have the energy capability. USS Enterprise and all those other futuristic ships, which are not aerodynamic, generally speaking, are not designed to fly in the atmosphere. Or if they are, they've got you know terrific power sources that are completely fictitious, the lithium crystals and so on, where they are not worried about you know the economy of the vehicle. And, you know, as you said, as it takes less and less energy or become more efficient at getting these crafts up there and more and more people want to go up, the capsule itself is going to get bigger. The propulsion mechanism will probably get smaller. I mean, is that not accurate? That's exactly right. Uh, you, You want to get people up there. You want to get your well people or payload. You want to get as much payload for as little cost as you possibly can. Uh, And that is what drives the design of almost every single rocket. And that goes even for the space shuttle, which was a very ungainly looking vehicle. But you, you know, you were flying up a truck. That's that's what the space shuttle effectively was. Affectionately, it was a big truck and it was put on top of stuff that would get it there. The external fuel tank, the solid rocket uh, boosters on the side. But all of them were aerodynamic. None of them were bricks, but it, it looked really ungainly. But the same principle is applying maximum payload delivery for the minimum amount of effort, energy and therefore cost. I guess if uh, if the Blue Origin rocket came to the top and, and was pointy, um, <laughs> why isn't it pointy at the top like the old Apollo rockets, Paul? Well, uh, well, e- even the Apollo capsules weren't all that pointy. Uh, actually, having a point up front is not the best design. You really do want to have that smooth interface and that long sloping uh, structure that bleeds away and redirects your airflow. So points aren't really good. How many cars do you know have got points on their front end? I mean, everything good is point. curved. That, that is just aerodynamics. I'm sorry. You, know, you, you don't want to have points if you can avoid it. Sharp points create bad airflow, and bad airflow basically means more energy to push whatever it is you're using through the the fluid. In this case, the fluid is the atmosphere. Uh, you know, it, it, go to an airport, have a look at an airplane. How many pointy aircraft do you have flying yeah, in our skies? Yeah. All of them are rounded. It, it's the same basic shape. We've been doing this for 50 or 60 years. Spacecraft don't have to reinvent the wheel as they fly through the atmosphere. They build on the experience that we have gathered together over the last many, many decades. And you bring up a valid point about high-speed rail. I mean, I remember the first time I went on a high-speed rail train, which go close to like 300K. Uh, the first thing I thought about it, I thought about when I saw it in the station before we left was, it looks like a jumbo jet without wings. Yeah, exactly. Well, that that was not an accident. <laughs> All yeah. the folks who are de- who are designing our transportation needs have to push those vehicles through the air. The air is a fluid, and it has certain well-defined characteristics. Those characteristics change a little bit with altitude as the density of the air changes and so on and so forth. But nonetheless, here at the bottom of the atmosphere, which is where the hardest aspects of any vehicle uh, you know, the, the hardest aspect of movement for those vehicles, you've basically designed them all the same way with a nice, smooth, round top, which flares away and, as I say, directs the the, the, the flow of air accordingly. Uh, obviously, it's, it's been uh, some time since uh, th- this capsule landed. Uh, your thoughts of where we are today, uh, what have we learned from this uh, latest experiment, I guess, and, and what comes next? Well, uh, the fact that the, uh, the new Shepard flight was, was picture perfect, I haven't heard anything from the telemetry assessment post-flight that suggests uh, any uh, anomalies associated with the vehicle. As I've indicated to you yesterday, the uh, new Shepard is a very mature design. They are going to continue the analysis. Uh, my understanding is that they've got a couple more test flights planned uh, in the very near future, presumably just to, you know, work out some wrinkles of performance, not of safety, but of performance. Again, we're coming back to this business model. Uh, They want to refine their activity so they can turn around this reusable system as quickly as is practical so they can fly up a new set of of passengers. So whether or not we're going to see any more space tourists this year on either Virgin Galactic or 
um, Blue Origin that has not been released. I certainly am aware that both companies have got research payloads to deliver to the uh, suborbital space environment. Uh, again, tourism is only a part of this business model. Hmm. There are a, an enormous number of research organizations that want access to this altitude, and both companies are able to deliver that. So there's probably going to be sort of a six months worth of, I won't say cooling off period, but continuing to provide the necessary feedback to all their engineering teams to make sure that the the, the mechanisms that they've got in place will in fact be uh, both safe from an individual space perspective, flight perspective, but can be turned around quickly, again, using the aircraft analogy. You know, you, you fly an aircraft in uh, to the airport, they discharge their, their passengers, the next set gets on, and you may service that, that aircraft you know, once a week or thereabouts and just give it a quick gloss over in between flights. That's the type of reusability that both organizations want to see. And ultimately, so too to SpaceX, although they're flying into orbit, not suborbit. So how much of what we saw yesterday of this craft yesterday is reusable? And, and for all of these, how much of it is reusable? How much of it isn't? All of it. That, 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 that's the, the beauty whole thing. of it. Uh, yeah. Both Virgin Galactic as well as Blue Origin have got completely reusable vehicles. So this uh, new Shepard uh, rocket that flew yesterday, it was its second or third flight, as I recall, and they've had one of their previous uh, rocket boosters uh, fly six or seven times. So it is a completely reusable rocket stage, and as far as Blue Origin is concerned, as is the uh, the payload section where the people are sitting. Ditto as far as uh, Virgin Galactic is concerned. SpaceX hasn't quite got fully reusable uh, at this point. Their Dragon capsules are reusable. Their first stage Falcon 9s are reusable. But unfortunately, at the moment, their second stages end up in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, but it is expected in the not so distant future. In fact, they're testing the super heavy Starship uh, on the pad as we speak. Uh, we're expecting to see the launch of Starship prototype later this year. And if that goes well, then SpaceX will join Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin with a completely orbital class reusable rocket. So what happened to the rocket that uh, that dropped off Blue Origin or, or the capsule? Where, where did that rocket end up? Oh, it landed literally back where it started. The same way. Eh? That <laughs> yeah, is incredible. Yeah. Yesterday, they weren't focusing on the rocket. If you watch, and it's on YouTube, if anybody is yeah. interested, uh, the 15 previous flights of New Shepard are all catalogued there. And you can watch the, the first stage go up, deploy its uh, payload, and then follow it back down. So, yeah, it, it, very, it lands vertically just like the uh, Falcon 9. That is the weirdest looking. Yesterday. That is the weirdest looking thing you will ever see. So is it basically they just fuel it back up and send it up? I mean, obviously, I'm sure there's a process there, but basically, you fuel, <laughs> but refuel and send it up. That's basically what it is, and and that's what the next couple of flights are going to be. They want to be able to refine that process so that literally, when it comes down, they're going to check it all over. They do this now with Falcon Nine. Uh, and then when they're happy that uh, nothing untoward has happened, they're just going to fuel it up and let it go again. That's, you know, aircraft reusability we come to expect. And that's what's driven the cost of air travel down. We're not having to fly a brand new plane every time we want to fly to London mm. with 100 or 200 people on board. That's what Virgin Galactic, that's what Blue Origin, that's what uh, SpaceX want to do. They want to be able to take a known architecture that they understand and reuse it 10, 20, or in the case of New Shepard, they're talking about 100 times over. That's what drives the cost of the ticket down. Uh, we talked about this yesterday. Maybe you can touch on this again, Paul, and that's the fuel being used because, again, there's some misconception up there uh, out there about how damaging these rockets can be to the, uh, to the atmosphere and such. Talk about the fuel being burned. In the case of Blue Origin, it's actually the most environmentally friendly of all of these three systems that we've been talking about. It literally puts together hydrogen and oxygen. The uh, explosive combination when you bring hydrogen and oxygen together is what generates the thrust of the vehicle, but the byproduct is water. <laughs> so everything you're seeing coming out of the back of that engine is steam, essentially. Uh, but of course, it's being combined uh, in a way that allows us to utilize that energy of recombination of the hydrogen and the oxygen. So it's a very, very environmentally friendly system. 
Uh, not so much so for Virgin Galactic and uh, SpaceX. And this is a concern. Uh, we are not contributing in a positive way to our atmosphere. However, you know, keep it in perspective, you know, uh, one rocket launch does expend a lot of fuel, but all of the traffic in and around Hamilton and Toronto are comparable on a daily basis. And last I checked, Falcon 9 is not launching every single day. So yes, it is an issue we need to address. We need to find better fuel combinations that do less damage to the atmosphere. But in the grand scheme of the problems that we have, rocket launches are not a significant contributing factor to our atmospheric pollution problems, but they certainly do contribute. And like space junk, we need to be better stewards of this type of transportation system. Can we learn more from this fuel technology? Um, because obviously we're talking about electric vehicles down here. Is this something that can be used on the ground or is it too volatile? Um, uh, well, the, the moment you start putting hydrogen in pressurized tanks inside your vehicle, yeah, yeah most engineers go, this is not a good recipe for the uh, average motorist to have yeah. to worry about. Uh, so while it sounds really appealing, not so much. So whether or not we're going to see uh, the, the maturation of rocket technology inside yours and I's vehicles, no, I, I think you're more likely to see the sort of Tesla type approach, the electric vehicle and the improvement in the storage capacity of charge, the uh, rapidity with which a, a, a Tesla vehicle or a Tesla-like vehicle, an electric vehicle can recharge. And so that is more likely the direction that uh, vehicles on the ground are going to go rather than the technology that allows massive amounts of energy. I mean, you know, think about the amount of energy that's associated with the rocket launches and even an air crafts launch mm. having that in the back of your vehicle uh, worries me a little bit uh so i think i'll leave that to the the big guys and let's go buy electric cars or something that strikes me as safer paul delaney with us professor of astronomy york university talking about jeff bezos blue origin rocket and why it is shaped the way that it is paul thank you for <laughs> answering these burning questions about physics and science be well anytime scott bye <laughs> The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.